Hello, I'm Pastor Eric Longman. Welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Rogers, Arkansas. Each week we gather to talk through some passage of scripture or some interesting topic that has come up in the life of a church, and we invite you to come along for the ride and to listen in. Just a bit of a setup, Holy Trinity is a member congregation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, or LCMS. We believe in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and we place Jesus and his suffering, death, and resurrection for the sake of sinful people like you and me at the center of our teaching. You should know going in that I'm very much open to exploring rabbit holes in Bible study. I take on it as simple. Whatever passage of scripture we're looking at is just an entry point. It gets us into God's word and it opens the door for the discussion to go wherever the Holy Spirit takes us. So don't be surprised when we wander down some pathways that maybe are only tangentially related to the topic at hand. It makes for some interesting conversations, and we're blessed with a group that's happy to share their experiences along the way. So with that, let's jump in to this week's episode. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Adult Bible Study at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Longman. A reminder for everybody, we are recording for the podcast, so don't say anything that you don't want to have on the internet forever. Um, Any questions about anything before we jump into our study? You guys never have anything. Somebody can make up something. Wait a minute. (laughs) I got in trouble last time I said that. Oh, they all come at the end. (laughs) We have a few more copies. We're on session four. Um, So your sheet says session four, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, and Intercessor. So if you need a copy of that, Pat's got a few more copies for you. Um, Where we're at is we've kind of been talking the last couple of weeks about um, Jesus, you know, the Christ and about the two natures of Jesus, his humanity and also his divinity or his godness. Um, And we've been looking at it really through the lens of the Augsburg Confession. Um, This week, we're going to get more into the apology now. So remember just the order of what's going on here. The Augsburg Confession um, was that document that was presented to the emperor um, in 1531, 1530, something like that. Um, And it was the initial, I mean, basically the emperor finally was like, we've got to deal with this Lutheran problem. So he commanded everybody to come to a diet and a convention, and they had to present their stance on what they were teaching. Um, sometime after that, um, in a document that had lost to history, the Catholic Church responded. Um, we don't know exactly what their response is, but we have some idea of it because we wrote an apology or a defense of the Augsburg Confession in response to their response. And so we have the Augsburg Confession, which is just a clear laying out of the teaching of the church. The Catholics responded. We don't know exactly what they said, but then we have our defense of the Augsburg Confession that goes into much greater depth on some of the topics than the original confession did. So we have spent the last couple of weeks looking at Jesus and the two natures of Christ and his role and justification and all that mostly through the lens of the Augsburg Confession. Now we're going to shift and look at the Apology and see what it has to say as well. A couple of things just to make you aware of. The biggest one is that we are starting a new member class on August 20th. Um, So if you um, want to become a member at Holy Trinity, that's kind of the entry point. It's a six-week class that goes over the basics of the Lutheran faith talks about the history of Holy Trinity and some other stuff like that um, and gives you that. It's not strictly for new members, though. I mean, anybody who wants to come is welcome to come. Um, and I've had a lot of folks come just because they kind of wanted a refresher. Um, so you're welcome to do that. If you're interested in that, reach out to Tabby in the church office. Um, you can give her a call. You can email her, tabby at holytrim.org, um, and she will get you registered for that class. Okay, um, That will be taught... Most by three of us, really, Pastor Mike and I, and um, some of you know Tambaraj Samuel, um, who actually um, played his cello for us at the early service, and it was beautiful. Um, he will be assisting with that as well, so we'll kind of be tag teaming that class. Um, what else is going on? 
Not much. I don't know. It's the dog days of summer, right? <laughs> Look for the, the uh, clarion is out now, and I've got a whole article about the dog days of summer. So. Um, any other thoughts, questions, comments? I was vacation Bible school. Fabulous. I had a great time. Now, I wasn't here because <laughs> I was in Hattiesburg, but um, I, I don't remember how many kids we had. I think it was 11 throughout. Um, but it went really well. We, we had a meeting this week, you know, for kind of lessons learned and started prepping. We already have a date for next year. Um, so we're set for that. And we're going to be a little bit earlier in some of our advertising and stuff, try and get the word out better. But it was good. And thank you to everybody who helped provide food for that. Terry. Alice continually says, it was so much fun. Awesome. Good. <laughs> I heard she was high energy. <laughs> Good. Which is pretty consistent. I remember last weekend in the Narthex, she was running circles around me. <laughs> um, all right. Did everybody get a chance to sign in? That's, there's a sign-in sheet here. Um, if everybody got their name on there, we can add Robert Carter. I got you, Robert. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'm going to write your name four times because, you know. I'm not late. Yeah, right. the, the joke is that I'm paid by attendance. So. All right. <laughs> Any other questions before we jump on? Okay. Um, let's start with the devotion. Again, I'm using this book by faith alone. Um, these are just a series of devotions written by Martin Luther. There's one for every day of the year. And I just use whatever today's is. So, um, For July 30th. Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Therefore, God's choice does not depend on a person's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And the title of this is Stuck in the Mud. Luther wrote, Even with extreme effort, learning to depend on God's mercy is difficult, especially for us who have been raised in the doctrine of works and who have been told to look to the law and our own efforts. Moreover, our nature leans toward doing works, we're so rooted in our habits and our hearts are so used to it that we can't stop thinking this way. If I have lived a holy life and have done great and many works, then God will be merciful to me. So we struggle both against our nature and our ingrained habits. It is extraordinarily difficult to change our thinking and to clearly distinguish between faith and love. Even if we already have faith, the mud still sticks and clings to us. We keep wanting to brag. I have preached so long. I have lived so well. I've done so much. Surely God will take note of that. We want to bargain with God. We want him to look at our lives and change the judgment seat into the mercy seat because of what we have done. But nothing will come of this. You may be able to tell other people, I've tried to do good to everyone. Where I have fallen short, I'll try to make it up. But when you come before God, Leave such bragging at home. Remember that you're appealing for grace, not justice. Let anyone try this. He'll see how difficult and troublesome it is. A person who has been stuck in his own works his whole life finds it difficult to pull himself out of it and to let himself be lifted by faith. What a powerful reminder that our salvation rests not in what we do, but what in Christ has already done for us. It's pretty hard to grasp sometimes, but it's important. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for the gift of salvation that we have through your life, death, and resurrection. Um, our sinful nature, our humanness wants to look to the stuff we've done. Help to refocus us on the stuff that you have done uh, so that we can have certainty, we can have comfort and peace in knowing that you have obtained salvation, you have obtained forgiveness, and that you are there to reconcile us to God. Um, we ask that you would be present with us today as we study uh, your word and especially the, the uh, um, confession and the apology. Guide and lead our understanding so that it would uh, point always to you and um, bring glory to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I'll give you, I mean, we have a couple of more questions. I won't go back and read all this stuff out of the confession that we read before. We really were looking at um, the confession articles 3 and 21 that talk about 
Jesus and who he is and kind of what it means. Um, 21 was... Twenty-one is about worship of the saints, and that's the part we didn't really talk about. So just a little insight into that. The early church had developed an appreciation for those who confessed and sometimes died for their faith. However, deep corruption had developed within the church regarding the honor given to the saints, resulting in what could only be described as idolatrous worship. Those who have gone before us in the faith are to be honored, remembered, imitated, according to our various stations and callings in life. That's clear. However, it is clearly contrary to Scripture to teach that the saints are to be prayed to and invoked for aid. There's simply no command, no example, and no promise in it, in Scripture, indicating that we should pray to our departed brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so what, what Article 21 says is, our churches teach that the history of saints may be set before us so that we may follow the example of their faith and good works according to our calling. For example, the emperor may follow the example of David in making war to drive away the Turk from his country, for both are kings. But the scriptures don't teach that we are to call on the saints or to ask the saints for help. Scripture sets before us the one Christ as the mediator, atoning sacrifice, high priest, and intercessor. He is to be prayed to. He has promised that he will hear our prayer. And this is the worship that he approves above all other worship, that he be called upon in all afflictions. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So, along those lines... In, we're up to question 53, which is on page 25. Okay. In what ways is it helpful for God's people to remember the saints? Just when what they did. Yeah, they give us an example, right? They, they paint a picture of what it looks like to live a life of faith. Yeah. What else? Is that it? <laughs> yeah, so we, we can use them as as kind of guidance, right, to how to live that life. Yeah. Anything else? Did they write the Bible, uh, the saints? Uh, a lot of them did, and so uh, that that would give us... So certainly, certainly those who were inspired by God to put pen to paper and write are among the saints. But that's what our um, direction and, yeah, and, and that, I mean, so we thank God for that, for the blessing of, of that he used them to preserve his word, right? Um, but there are a lot of other saints, too. We, hear, we read about them in the Bible, some of them. We read about them, you know, in just sort of the world. I mean, Mother Teresa is a great example of one of the saints that we've heard about and learned about. Remember Mother Teresa? Well, yeah, I know, but it's not scriptural. Um, she's not scriptural, but that doesn't make her not a saint. In fact... So, and this is, this is one of the things that I, I think it sort of blows people's minds when they come into the Lutheran church. Um, Ken, you're a saint. You're a saint. And Donna's a saint, and Jim, and Betty, and John, and Kathy, and Brittany, and you know, all of y'all. <laughs> but, so, the, I mean, the distinction really that Scripture makes is that they're the saints are those who are those who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. If they can do it, maybe I can do it. Well, yeah, and that's, that's the whole idea of the examples, right? That it, that it becomes an encouragement to live a life, to stand firm in your faith, um, because you can read these stories about the saints who have gone before us. Um, so, you know, we talk about, um, here's another one that's not scriptural, but, but there's actually a day within the church calendar when we remember them, um, and that's um, Pastor, oh gosh, what was his name? Um, Luther's confessor, Staupitz. Um, Father Staupitz, who was Martin Luther's confessor, he was the priest to whom he confessed his own sins. Well, we remember him as a saint as well, probably for putting up with Luther's confession, <laughs> which went on and on and on and on and on. Um, but, you know, he's one of the saints that kind of is brought to our attention. Philip Melanchthon, there's another example. Um, Philip Melanchthon, who penned the Augsburg Confession. He's not scriptural, and yet we remember him for the deeds of faith that God led him to. Yeah, Robert. So what you're saying is that the saints are role models for us. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that's an appropriate way 
to remember and to honor the saints. Yeah. You don't have to experience trauma or perform miracles to be a saint. You just must live by following Christ. Yeah. You're a believer in Christ. And you the follow. small things that you may do, and some of you may not even be aware of, is following Christ. Yeah. Some of the role models of the saints are very small. You know, acts of service that nobody even notices. Somebody, I know who it is, I won't point them out, goes through and cleans up the sanctuary after worship, picking up all the bulletins that are left behind, making sure that we always have pencils out there, making sure that the welcome cards are stopped and all that kind of stuff. That's a saint doing the work of God. A little bitty thing, right? But it's got to get done. So, now what... what the re Go ahead. Before Jean. Luther, before Luther okay. there was other Protestant people who proclaimed the same thing and were more burned at Sure, the stake. yeah. So, I mean, one of the... And uh, <coughs> I have a book on that. And what they said and what they went through right. uh, is unforbiddable. I mean, yeah, it's just un mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, Jan Hus is a great example of that. Yeah, so Jan yeah. Hus is 100 years before Luther, and he basically was saying the same stuff. Yeah. And yet his his outcome was that he was burned at the stake burned as a heretic. at the stake. Right. Luther comes along 100 years later, things line up just right, that he gets the time for this to get traction. And it actually turns into the Reformation, you know. But yeah, Jan Hus is an example. Gene, what were you going to say? But, but aren't the doesn't the Catholic Church make the saints you pray to them, like Saint Christopher or that? So that's what they're talking about here. Yeah. And and basically what what's what's come up in the confession here is saints are awesome, used correctly, and and they're calling out an a. a an inappropriate practice of the Catholic Church that actually continues in some form to this day to say, yeah, cool, we should remember the saints. We should tell those stories. We should be encouraged by them. We should seek to emulate their faith and stand firm in our own. All those things are great, but you cross the line when you tell people that they've got to pray to them as though the saints are going to intercede on, on their behalf. And, and so... What the confession is basically doing is saying there's a there's a place for the saints within our worship and within our faith life, but let's not put them into a role that God never intended them to be in and that scripture never encourages us to put them in, right? So it's kind of drawing a, a, a boundary line around what's appropriate in terms of the saints and what's not appropriate. And, and that... that Praying to them and asking them to intercede on our behalf is what crosses the line. Yeah, Myron. I, I Googled saints and it came up there's a chart, there's 112 listed, mm -hmm. and then it would give the feast day, like John the Baptist, yeah. the feast day, June 24th, and there was a biblical reference that would have but yep. So if you look, you know, we use a lectionary for worship, right? We, we use a, a fixed schedule of readings. It's a three-year cycle that, you know, over the course of three years, um, each series or, you know, the series A, series B, series C, the three years, each of them has a focus on a different one of the Gospels. Like right now we're in series A and the Gospel readings focus primarily on Matthew's Gospel. So that's why we're spending all this time in Matthew's Gospel. Included in the lectionary, over and above just the Sunday worship stuff, are all those feast days for the saints. Um, sometimes they line up on Sundays, oftentimes they don't. You know, a lot of times they're in the middle of the week and stuff like that. But it, that's, you know, that's a, a practice that we have continued in the Lutheran Church because that gives us an opportunity to stop for a minute and to consider those 112 saints and what they did in their lives and what their faith looked like as an encouragement to us in our own faith, yeah. So those feast days are, are marked in the in the lectionary. And you'll hear sometimes, you know, when, when they do happen to coincide or when there's something relevant, I'll bring in some of those saints and talk about them in sermons and stuff like that because it's kind of interesting. Pastor, yeah. In Israel, the yeah. Christian churches mm -hmm. recognize and also celebrate the Jewish feast days. Oh, interesting, cool. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. 
Nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, Jesus, Jesus celebrated. Yeah, of course the he did. Yeah. And he never, and he, he, he never said that we shouldn't do them anymore. Right. Right. But they, they very much do that. So, well, and Paul writes about that stuff though, because one of the things that Paul saw, and you see this in Colossians, I think does some spend some time with it. Um, maybe the Corinthians. One of the things that Paul wrestled with though was feast days are great. Right, but don't think for a minute that you're like, like warranting extra, extra, you know, mojo from God or something because you recognized a feast day. Feast days are, and and it's kind of the same way that we think about tradition, right? Good. Tradition's good, as long as we remember why we do it. But oftentimes traditions can turn into idols when people forget what the whole purpose of them was. You give it too much weight. Um, yeah, and you give it too much weight and turn it into something that it's not. We, um, we must go to Jerusalem once in our lifetime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, yeah you, it becomes a command, right? Thou shalt. Um, and that's not the point, that our salvation is entirely focused on Jesus Christ. So feast days are awesome, but they're, they're not a salvation-giving thing. Right. right? And that's, that's what Paul kind of wrestled with is, be careful with those kind of things that you don't turn them into something they aren't. In uh, 1969, as the church can create saints, they can also uncreate saints. And they uncreated 305 saints in 1969, including St. Christopher. Really? Yeah. really? But all those people have is metal and everything. i got to take that thing off my mirror. <laughs> <laughs> He's been demoted and can't help you anymore. Can you change his fare? There was a lot wow. of controversy at that time. There was <laughs> kind of apropos of nothing, but the, at the cathedral in St. Louis, which is a stellar, beautiful building, they have the practice is if I'm, I hope I remember this right because I don't want to misstate it, but the practice is that when bishops die or when the pope dies or whatever. Their, their hat, right, is suspended from the ceiling in their cathedral by a thread, essentially. And, and the thought process is, this is, where, this is where it was like, don't turn this into something that's not, right? The thought process was that, that over whatever time it took for that thing to degrade, when the thread finally broke and the hat fell, that meant that they had been released from purgatory. <laughs> Right. Well, well, no. Wait, and the rest of the story then is there was there was one of those hats that was suspended, I think, in the St. Louis Cathedral by a chain. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, wow. <laughs> so that's the term hanging by a thread. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> now I can't find a biblical reference for that. There isn't one. But, all right. So. I mean, I think you understand. It is helpful. The saints are helpful to us. But we don't want to step over the line and turn them into something that they're not by worshiping them or praying to them or, or anything like that. High priest, advocate, intercessor. Those are all titles that are applied to Jesus. Um, what do those titles reveal about Jesus and his gospel? Or they do with the Okay, he's the gateway to heaven, right? So covering all of those roles pretty well covers that. What else? Other thoughts on it? Yeah, okay, and he, the book of Hebrews talks about this basically. And he goes, listen, we have this whole sacrificial system set up. And the high priest made these sacrifices on behalf of the people. We had the Day of Atonement. There was all that business going on. Now Jesus has come. And he's the high priest. And all that stuff is done, right? So Jesus be, takes on that role of our high priest who's making intercession for the people, which plays into the second term, advocate, right? What is an advocate? Say that again, Betty. Like a lawyer. Like a lawyer, yeah. He speaks for He speaks for you, yeah. Like an attorney. Like someone who stands before the judge on your behalf. So Jesus is our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's the one who's between us and God the Father and steps in on our behalf. And I've mentioned it before, you know, that you see this 
in the language of the funeral service, actually, the first words that we speak in the funeral service are, in holy baptism, so-and-so was clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness that covered all his sin. So, so that when God the Father looks on us as believers, what he sees is Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness. So he stands between us and God the Father. He provides forgiveness, salvation, all of that kind of business. So high priest takes that role that had existed in the past and, and becomes it for eternity. Advocate, intercessor, the one who stands between. So in contrast to the saints who don't have those titles, Jesus is the one that we focus our attention on for prayers, for advocacy, for intercession, you know, for salvation, all those things focus on Jesus Christ. Puts him right at the center of everything. And we don't have to worry about all those saints because that's we're all going to Jesus straight, right? That's what was going on when Jesus died. Remember, there's that, there's that whole thing that Jesus dies, darkness descends on the land, there's this great earthquake, and in the middle of the earthquake, what happens? Do you remember? The curtain in the temple tears in half. From top to bottom, by the way, that's important. Now... Do you know what that temple curtain looked like? <coughs> These are not the draperies in your living room. It's thick and heavy. It's about this thick. It's about as thick as a hand width. Woven, wool, super heavy, super heavy duty. So for this thing to tear in half is really significant. And the fact that it tore in half from heaven to earth, from top to bottom, is important too. Because what it does, that curtain in the temple separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, which is where the presence of God was. Okay, And so when that thing tears open, what it does is it gives us access to God the Father directly. Symbolically, that's what it's pointing out. That through Jesus' death and ultimately through his resurrection, we have direct access to God the Father through our high priest, Jesus. Now, that leans hard into the divinity of Jesus, right? into his godness because he's given us access to something we would not otherwise have. And it did away with the Levitical priesthood requirements. Right, right. Because they, that was no longer needed. The Holy of Holies didn't have to right. be hidden. Right, and, and I don't know if y'all have ever heard this, the story about kind of how the Day of Atonement plays out. There's one day a year that's the Day of Atonement, which is the, the big you know, sacrifice that's made on behalf of all the people. And one priest is selected to go in and do the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. That priest would wear bells on his garments, on his vestments, um, so that as he's moving around in the Holy of Holies, they can hear him outside, because that stops. You know, the worry is that he's been struck dead. And when he went in, he went in with a rope tied around his ankle. So that if he was struck dead while he was doing it, they could at least yank him out. Because nobody was going in there after. Right? So, I mean, that's the, the reverence, right? And the respect for that place and for what was going on that existed. And Christ now, essentially, the, the point that Jesus makes in all of this is that's cool. All of that was there so that you would understand what was going on when I died. The whole sacrificial system, I would argue, was put in place so that when Jesus comes and dies in our place, we can look at that and go, oh, I see what's going on. I understand it because of all this other stuff that, that God had us do in the laws that he gave to us through Leviticus and through Deuteronomy and all that kind of stuff. So that whole system becomes a type, right, or, or a precursor or whatever that helps us make sense of Jesus' death as our sacrifice. Now, what's interesting, I think you were the one who brought it up, um, they continued to do it after his death for a little while. <laughs> then 70 AD rolls around and the temple is destroyed by the Romans and that's it. That's the end of the sacrificial system because the sacrifices have to be done in the temple. And once the temple is destroyed by the Roman forces in 70 AD, there is no place to do the sacrifices. So they don't. They haven't since. Do you know how extensive the destruction of the temple was? Does anybody know? It wasn't just a teardown of a building. No. The, they killed so many people that they ran out of wood 
four uh, crucifixes. And they just piled bodies up and it was like a mass grave. They killed so many people. Yeah. They don't even know how to count it. So scripture talks about, in terms of the destruction of the building, as not one stone was left upon another. And, and I know you know this, if you've been there, that's absolutely true. There's still a pile of the stones that were the temple laying at the base of, of the temple mount. Yeah, shoved them all off the edge of the temple mount. There was a lot of gold in there, yeah. and they burned it. And the gold ran down and got in between the genius yeah. crack, and they yeah. went and pulled the rocks down so they could get that. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it was truly, well and truly destroyed. And and in a sense, it's... Then they reused the stone. Yeah, yeah. There are some columns that are um, pieces of columns on the Temple Mount. This last time our tour guide showed us in the cracks where there is, you can still see paint. Oh really? And there's a couple of them where you can still see gold wow. in there. Wow. Just just in those blue and red paint. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I agree, John. I agree. Alright. So we're gonna turn now to the apology and what they said there. Um, early in the second century, the Roman governor Pliny wrote to Emperor Trajan and he said Christians usually come together before daybreak and sing hymns back and forth to Christ as a God. Pliny was closer to the truth than he knew, but Christ wasn't God-like. He is true God who became a human being. He is the God-man who paid the debt for our sins. And so we sing hymns to him and we pray to him because he's our intercessor before the Father. So looking at the apology of the Augsburg Confession, just a couple of sections that we'll pull out here. We confess that there are two natures in Christ. The human nature is assumed by the word into the unity of his person. Christ suffered and died to reconcile the Father to us and was raised again to reign, to justify, and to sanctify believers according to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Our confession approves honoring the saints. Now we're moving on to that Article 21. Uh, approves honoring the saints in three ways. The first is thanksgiving. We should thank God because he has shown examples of mercy, because he wishes to save people, and because he has given teachers and other gifts to the church. The second service is the strengthening of our faith. When we see Peter's denial forgiven, we are also encouraged to believe all the more that grace truly superabounds over sin. The third honor is the imitation, first of faith, then of the other virtues. Everyone should imitate the saints according to his calling. Our confession affirms only this. Scripture does not teach the invocation of the saints, nor that we are to ask the saints for aid. Since neither a command nor a promise nor an example can be produced from the scriptures about the invocation of saints, it makes sense that conscience remains uncertain about this invocation. Since prayer should be made from faith, how do we know that God approves this invocation? Without the testimony of scripture, how do we know that the saints know about the prayers of each one? The second requirement for an atonement maker is that his merits are shown to make satisfaction for other people. They're divinely given to others so that through them, just as by their own merits, other people may be regarded righteous. For example, when any friend pays a debt for a friend, the debtor is freed by the merit of another, as though it were by his own. So Christ's merits are given to us so that when we believe in him, we may be regarded righteous by our confidence in his merits as though we had merits of our own. From both of these, the promise and the giving of merits, arises confidence in mercy. Such confidence in the divine promise, and likewise in Christ's merits, should be promoted when we pray. For we should be truly confident, both that for Christ's sake we are heard, and that by his merits we have a reconciled Father. So, number 55. Share in your own words who Christ is and what he has done for you. What new insight into his saving work do you have today? 
Anybody want to take a stab at that? Who is Christ and what has he done for you? Creed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you just here, I got some words. <laughs> I believe in God the Father Almighty. Yeah, and all that. Sure. What else? There, there, there's other passages in scripture that uh, uh, Peter uh, when the, the ship went aground and the people wanted to worship him because the snake, oh, yeah. you know, and he said, no, 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 yeah, no, don't worship no, me. no, 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 don't worship me. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> and, a man. And where did the Catholics, how did they get around that? Because <laughs> they, well, and that's, I mean, that's, we kind of talked about this earlier, I think. Not, no, I don't want to go there, but no, no, they, it's okay. Because they I, go I think the it's next step and say Mary is somebody to worship. Right. Well, you want to get something done, you go to his mom. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, so I think there's a, there's a difference in how the Catholics and the Lutherans kind of approach things, and this is important because it it it, it explains the path that you take to get to something like that. For Martin Luther and for the Lutherans generally, the, the highest authority is Scripture, right? That it guides and norms everything else. That all doctrine is drawn from Scripture first and only, okay? And is supported by Scripture. <coughs> Below that, we would put a level of, I would call tradition, right? That th these are the things that, that aren't explicitly spelled out in Scripture, but that we have from the testimony of those who were with Christ or you know, those kind of things that exist that give us some deeper understanding of things that are in Scripture. Always subject to and, and underneath Scripture. But to the Catholic way of thinking, those two things are side by side. Scripture is an authority, but tradition is another authority, equal to, which is why they can say that, that a papal decree, for example, carries the same way as Scripture. Okay. Yeah, and, and it's one of the things that Luther pushed back on and he goes well, hang on a minute you can't say that the decree of a council or the decree of a pope carries the same weight as scripture particularly if that decree is contrary to scripture who wins you know what I mean where's the there's got to be a, a, a something that says which one of those two carries more weight which one of those two is more authoritative for the Catholic Church, generally speaking, they lean more toward authority, more toward tradition. Office of the keys. Um, yeah, but I mean that's you know that's in a in a different sense. Yeah. For the for the Lutherans, we said no, 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 no. Scripture has to take authority. Scripture has to be the norm by which everything else is guided. That's the thing that you have to be consistent with. And anything you come out with that's not consistent with that, right? Is yeah. So, so what had happened then in the Catholic Church was this um, reverence and appreciation for the saints, which we share, right, had morphed into something more and, and had turned into this whole idea that you invoke the saints and you pray to the saints and you pray to Mary and all that kind of stuff, who coincidentally is one of the saints. And, and Luther was like, no, uh, they're awesome. The saints are great, but... You've gone too far to say that we need to invoke their names in prayer, that we need to pray to them, that we need to ask them to be our intercessors, because Scripture is very clear that our intercessor is Christ. We're not going to go further than that. Okay? So does that help explain why? You, they come to different conclusions because they've got a different way of viewing things. Okay. On the other hand, yeah. we have Protestant beliefs that we choose Jesus not the other way around. We oh, decide. Hold up we don't have those. Those <laughs> exist in the world. <laughs> there are Protestant. There you go. <laughs> That's decision that theology. Say, yeah. I choose Jesus. Right. Right. And you make that confession that you've made right. this sacrifice to follow Jesus. Right. Including yeah. your baptism. Which is oh. extremely prominent in sort of generic American Christianity. That's mm -hmm. true. Yeah. That is not the stance of the Lutheran Church. No, we should be not very clear Lutheran about Church. Because the Lutheran Church leans into Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10. You're saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing, not a work of man so that no one can boast. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
um, given to us, right? So your faith is not a result of you making a decision. Your faith is a result of the Holy Spirit grabbing a hold of you and leading you to the truth. And, and what it really comes down to is Ephesians 2 starts with, you were dead in the sins and the trespasses in which you once walked. And dead people can't do anything to save themselves. The only way they're saved is an outside intervention that comes in the form of the Holy Spirit grabbing a hold of you and bringing you to faith. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a distinct and very different thing. And, it's, and in some cases, it's very subtle, right? That you, have, you must make this proclamation. You must make this decision. You must, you know, invite Jesus into your heart or whatever you want to call it. And, and the problem with it, I think, ultimately is kind of like we were talking about here, about this idea of, of the, the lack of confidence in praying to the saints because you don't have any scripture that tells you you must do that. That, that if, if my... If, if the, the spark that makes my salvation happen is that I made a decision for Christ, that's always going to be in doubt. Did I do it right? Did I pray the prayer correctly? Did I really mean it when I said it? Was my heart oriented properly? You know, did I doubt after I said that? There's always that little bit of uncertainty about it. If your salvation happened because God reached down and grabbed a hold of you and brought you to faith, well, now I know... It was done right. Now I know that everything that had to be done was done properly because it wasn't dependent on dopey old me. Because truly, you're going to leave it up to me. I'm going to screw it up. I'm not going to do it right. Terry. This is going to show my lack of knowledge of the scripture, but doesn't it say that the Christ chose you? Not that you chose yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you were chosen by Christ. Yeah. Paul talks about you know that 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 we are predestined, right? That God that God foreknew us, foreknew. That's a weird word, but He knew us ahead of time. He chose us. He has you know brought us to Himself. And before the world, before, yeah, right, right. Before the world, you want to blow your mind before you were ever even born. God knew what was going to happen. Um, so yeah, I mean that's 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 the scriptural narrative, right? That, that we are saved by grace through faith alone. The, the, the theological term for it is monergism, which is to say that our salvation is entirely due to what God has done, and I have nothing to do with it. We have one action we can take. Well, you can reject. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing that you can do is say no. That's right. Right? Um, and, and, you know, we... we wrestled with this a lot when we talked about free will and all that kind of stuff and what it means. You can't say yes. You can't decide for God. You can. Yeah, you can You can reject. No, you can stop denying. You, oh, you can stop that, denying, sure. That's, that's a decision that you can make. If no, deny. you can't make it. Why? Because your sinful nature won't let you make that oh, decision. Okay. Your sinful nature is always opposed to God. So if you manage to stop denying, the only way that happened was by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he softened your heart and that he brought you to an understanding of the truth and that you were able to go, oh, I get it now. So your sinful nature will not allow you to stop denying. That's just that's a subtle reversal of decision theology. It's a really fine line. And it's yeah. yeah. (laughs) Pat's head is about to explode over there. That's my answer to those that have an altar call. That have what? That is my answer to those that insist on having an altar call. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's not a tree. There was... I don't remember where I heard it. I mean, in that tradition. There was a podcast that came out recently called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I think I told you all about it. That's about Mars Hill Church in Seattle and Mark Driscoll, who was their celebrity pastor... Um, church started in the late 90s, grew gangbusters. I mean, they were huge, 20,000 members plus. Um, and then it, in the span of about three months, imploded um, because of revelations that came out about spiritual abuse, about a toxic workplace, about a lot of things that were going on that were not godly. But, but in that podcast, there was an interview with a, with a, um, a Baptist leader, and I, I don't remember his name, but he put a spin on the altar call that I thought was absolutely beautiful. Because his take on the altar call was not so much about making a decision for God or anything like that. 
It was about trusting that God was walking with you in that moment to carry you through whatever you were going through. And that when an altar call was made and somebody stepped forward, what they were, what they were doing basically was showing their trust in God and, and being surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who were there to encourage them through that. Now that's the best, the best take on altar calls that I have ever heard. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, because that's an image of, of th- this community that God calls us into. I think that's awesome. If that's what all of them meant by right. it. Yeah, it's not. Like, you're right. Come down and make that decision. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which is yeah. totally against Exactly. Right. About. Yeah, you're exactly right. Okay, that's, that's, my, yeah. that's my answer to their decision. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see your point. I see your point. Good. Okay, thoughts, questions, comments? The other unique thing, when we talk about the new member class, and we yeah. try to do it too, is that you know, you build a strong congregation. You just don't feel good one day and join the next. Right. You know, educate right. people. Yeah. Show them the word. Help us all. Yeah. I mean, the phrase I usually use with it is, you need to know what you're saying yes to. Right? You need to understand what it is that we, the words are, believe, teach, and confess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody once said that, Lutheranism is intellectually rigorous. Right? And I like that. It's like, you know, ask the questions, dive in, think. You know, it's, it's you know, let God, use the stuff God gave you. Robert. Well, this week, on another note, um, they found out in Bethsaida, they found out uh, where Peter was living. St. Peter? Oh, yeah. And his brother, Andrew? Yeah. Uh, in Bethsaida, they found a mosaic on the floor that says, hey, this is where. Yeah, now Peter's home in Capernaum is well known. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a Catholic church built over top of it. Looks like a looks like a UFO. Um, but what's interesting about it about Peter's home, and the reason we know it's Peter's home, is when they found it in the ruins, they found the home, and they found an octagonal. Oct- I'll try this in English. O- thank you. Octagonal, octagonal wall built around it, and then another octagonal wall built around that, and and. Everybody looked at it and went, oh, Peter's house. Now, why? <laughs> What's up with the octagonal wall, right? Yeah. So it's Peter who wrote, baptism now saves you. And he talks about Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, eight souls in all. And so the octagon, historically, is kind of a symbol for Peter. And, and what's fascinating about that, I mean, so with, with a fair amount of certainty, we can say, yeah, that was Peter's house. Because, you know, going way back, people had kind of marked it and said, that's an important place. And what's cool about it is there's a, there's a passage in Scripture where Jesus is in Capernaum and he's preaching in the synagogue and stuff. And they get done and they go to Peter's house and his mother-in-law is sick. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, what's cool about it is if you go to Capernaum, like you can stand at the place where Peter's house is and it is, you can throw a rock and hit the synagogue. I mean, it's right there. So it's like, wow, it makes perfect sense that that's where they would go after they were at church because, you know, it'd be like walking across the street here. You know, they, they finished the church and went over to the Honda dealer. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not much further. Than, it's not even that far, I don't think. The point yeah. is that, um, that Peter lived in those times mm-hmm. and he was real. Mm-hmm. Oh, it wasn't made up. In There's, we're all the time finding stuff like that, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, well, the fact that they found the mosaic with writing on it yeah. tells everybody that this is the real site of Bethsaida. Yeah. Because they had a different site. In fact, the signs there haven't been changed. Oh, really? Yeah. So they're finding more. And what's, what's really neat for me personally is... The guy who was our tour guide during the summers, he does archaeological work at Bethsaida, and he's there right now, and two days ago he posted on his Facebook page that after 15 years doing archaeological work, he finally found a coin. Oh, cool. Oh, it was neat. like there at Bethsaida. Wow. But it's like, yes, because he's, he's posted pictures of that mosaic. And yeah. That, when they find something with writing on it that... That says this is the site yeah. instead of tradition says this is right. the site. Because you don't pick up a mosaic and move it around. Then what's cool is that there are architectural finds like that all the time that 
consistently support the scriptural account. One of my favorites was um, for years and years and years and years, um, um, scholars said, well, there was, there's no evidence that there was ever a person named Pontius Pilate. I mean, just, we don't think he really existed. He was just invented for scripture. Um, and I think it was 1969 or something like that, they found a column in Caesarea Maritima that has an inscription that basically says this building is dedicated to Caesar um, erected by Pontius Pilate. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess there really was a guy named Pontius Pilate. Um, city of David is another one, right? I mean, for years they were like, yeah, there's the City of David in Scripture and all that kind of stuff, but we don't think it really existed. And then anytime you build in Jerusalem, you've got to do an archaeological dig just to be sure. And, and they were going to put up a parking lot, I think it was, and they did this archaeological dig, and they were like, oh, look, we found the City of David right where it said it would be. <laughs> it's like, so that happens a lot, and it's really cool when it does because inevitably it comes back and it supports the biblical record. And we're like, okay, one of the distinctives about Christianity is that our holy scriptures describe real people real places and real events. This isn't stuff that was made up or, or, you know, fables that kind of tell us something about something. It tells us about actual events where God was active in and through his people in the world. Through, you know, real places, real, you know, there's a real map of the place where all this stuff happened to real people who we can increasingly prove actually existed. Wow. Isn't that neat? All right. Look at this. Well, we did like three questions. We got time for the one last. How do the apostles and the Nicene creeds underlie and promote Article 3? How do the creeds basically support Article Article 3, which is talking about who Jesus is? Partly a test to see how well you remember the creeds. Well, it's promoted, it's promoted because we say it in church. Okay, yeah. We speak that again and again and again. We speak it on a regular basis. Right, right. And they're consistent with what Scripture says, right? So when we talk about Jesus Christ in the Apostles' Creed, for example, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Okay, so already we've, we've established that relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Um, we've established. Uh, well, and we'll get there in the third article. Yeah, um, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So there, we got it in there. Born of the Virgin Mary. So we talk about this miraculous Virgin birth. Um, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So we jump, you know, jump ahead to his death. Um, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again. So now we're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about that miraculous event, right? On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. We get to the ascension, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So we, we basically, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, affirm all this stuff about Jesus, about his divinity, about his life, about his humanity, about the things that he did on our behalf. Now, the Nicene Creed goes deeper. And it's the reason the Nicene Creed exists. Because the Nicene Creed was formulated specifically to refute the Arian heresy, which was that, that Jesus is not divine. And so the, the Nicene Creed leads hard into his divinity. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, uh, who was begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation, blah, 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 goes on from there. So the Nicene Creed really pushes hard on the divinity of Jesus and on the fact that he is of the same substance, homoousios is the Greek term that was used there, the same substance as God the Father. Okay, And so those, both of them speak to the two natures of Christ, but also to his work um, to bring salvation to us by being um, by by being our sacrifice, by taking our sins on Himself and dying for us. Thoughts, comments, complaints. I'm open for all of it. 
Uh, system yeah, going the lectionary. through over three years. Yes. Do they cover every passage in the Bible? Mm. It does not. Although, and this is that's an interesting point. It hits the high points of themes. Okay. And and one of the great values of the lectionary to you is the fact that it forces me to give you the whole counsel of God. And what I mean by that is. By following the lectionary, it will take me to passages and to sections to preach that I might not otherwise want to do because they're not my little hobby horses, you know. Um, and, and so it will force me to address things that God has addressed in his word that, that my human nature might not take me to. Is it the same every three years? Yes. Yeah. It just, it's a three-year cycle. Okay, so we're, we're in year A now. We'll start year B. Then year C. Then we go back and do year A. Okay. So we just, it's a three-year cycle. There is a one-year lectionary. Some churches use it um, that, that kind of condenses everything down and repeats every year. We use the three-year lectionary here. As pastor, the Jews use three scriptures also. Oh, do they? It's a, okay. The, the Hashtag, which is the first five books, the Torah. Yeah, that Torah. They yep. read that every, yep. they go through it in a year. Yep. And then it's the... See, prophets. The yeah, it's the law, the prophets, and the history. Yeah. Yeah. But the Christian churches there will also do the Hashtarah uh -huh. and the prophets, and then the New Testament. Oh, okay. Is what okay. they do. Yeah. So our pattern, there are three readings: an Old Testament, yep. a New Testament, or yep. an epistle, and a gospel. And and what you'll find mostly is that epistle reading tends to kind of float on its own. Oftentimes, like right now, we're working through Romans. So week to week, we're kind of advancing through Romans. But almost always, the Old Testament and the Gospel readings are closely connected. And they'll give you the theme for the day. You'll, you'll get some sense of what's going on by looking at each other. Yeah, in a sense. They, yeah. they prove of each other. Yeah. 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 So, so like today, for example, you've got a passage from Deuteronomy that talks about how God has selected the Israelites as his treasured possession and then you jump into Matthew where Jesus gives a parable of the, of the hidden treasure. And so that, that gives you some continuity in those two. Good. Yeah, yeah, it's neat. Yes, sir? Are all those on the same ABC or could one be on A and another be on B year? Yes, yeah, they're different passages from year to year. Um, so, I mean, you know, within, you know, it's readings for the, any given Sunday, right? And, and the Old Testament passage and the gospel will match up them thematically. Um, but but what's in series A is completely distinct from what's in series B. A good example is, um, I think it's the book of Hezekiah. Appears only in year C, I think. There's like one place where it shows up. So, you know, you've got different readings in different places, but it do, what it does do is over the course of that three years, you've got a pretty, I mean, it's not every passage, yeah, but it's no. a pretty good survey of all the teachings of the Bible. And, and that's that's been around for hundreds of years. It's it's ancient. That's yes. why we should read the Bible through yeah, completely yeah, yeah. ourselves. Oh, absolutely. It, it lets you fill in the blanks. Yeah. 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 If I were to go to another Lutheran church, yep. would they be doing A also? For the most part, yes. I mean, any any LCMS church that's doing the three-year lectionary, they'll be in year A, and they'll be doing the same readings that we are. Yeah. So <laughs> my dad, for example, that. yeah, my dad, for example, He'll go to his church in, in Gainesville, Georgia, and then he'll come home and he'll watch my sermon and he'll make comparisons between how I handled it and how his pastor handled it. We always have a debrief at the end of the day. So. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. He's usually pretty complimentary. So. Fortunately, it sounds like he has a really good pastor, so he gets, he gets different insights. It's neat. All right. Um, we're a little past time. Um, any last words? We will we will pick this up, but we'll finish this lesson four or as much as we can, and move on to five um, the following week. Um, yeah, that's it. Um, let's close with a prayer then. Thank you, Lord God, for the blessing of this group of people, for the the insights that they bring to the table, and for their willingness to share. Um, it's wonderful to gather around your word and to as as brothers and sisters in Christ just to share to bring out of our own treasures the things that you have gifted each of us with. We thank you for that. I thank you for the community and the, the
the camaraderie and the fellowship that we share in this class. I pray that as we go forth from here, you would guide and lead us in everything that we do, uh, that it might be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name. We ask it in the name of your dear son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Well, thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. I pray that you've learned a bit, that you met Jesus, and that your faith was built up through the discussion that you just heard. If you want to learn more about Holy Trinity, you can visit our website. It's www.holytrend.org. The website for the LCMS, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, is www.lcms.org. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Have a great week.